Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. Today's illustrious guest is my friend and colleague, Todd Krupp. Todd is the self-proclaimed conciliary of mobile solutions at HPE Aruba. With over 40 years of experience in the technology industry, including First Interstate Bank, Cisco Systems, and 15 years at his current position at Aruba Networks. He currently lives in Murrieta, California with his four kids, his wife of 35 years, Pam, eight horses, and two miniature donkeys. Special shout out to Dan Allen from HPE Aruba for introducing us. So without any further ado, let's jump into it. Mr. Todd Krupp. Welcome, and thanks again for uh, agreeing to do this today. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here, Tom. Th- thanks for the invite. Um, I don't know about you weather-wise, but it's it's going to be a good day today after that little bit of wetness yesterday. Yeah, it uh, looks like it's drying off out there. I planted a little bit of grass in the backyard uh, a few weeks ago, so it was a good time to, to get a rain. Um, now, you, hear, you hail from Murrieta, California. Tell us exactly where that is. Sure thing. Marietta is kind of right dead center between Riverside County and San Diego. Um, you probably hear Temecula. There's a couple hidden oh, wineries sure. up there and all that fun stuff. So that's that's kind of the well-known secret. We're kind of hidden in the mountains of Marietta. If you go as the crow fly, you'll hit uh, San Juan Capistrano and, and they have an Ortega highway that you can wind through and all that other fun stuff. But been here 24 years. Okay. And what? Um, how did you end up there? Where are you from originally and what brought you to Marietta? Well, I was originally Pasadena. My wife and I got married and uh, we couldn't afford a house in, in the local area there. So we moved out to the Inland Empire, um, started a job with Cisco way back when and went to see one of the territory managers homes up in Murrieta, a guy named Steve Vitamani. And my wife looked at the roads and there were horse-drawn carriages actually going. And she <laughs> says, you know what? I don't care how many jobs you need. We're living up here. <laughs> so gotcha. that, that's what started it all. Oh, that's great. All right. So um, it looks like your job title in your, uh, in your email signature is conciliary of mobile solutions, but tell us uh, a little bit about your role at Aruba. When did you join Aruba? And you said, um, one of your first jobs was at Cisco, but tell us, uh, how you ended up where you are and uh, what you're doing now. Sure. Sure. So I'm, I'm going to give you the baby with the bathwater. So, so reality is I, I was a pizza guy. So I, I was making pizza. I thought, you know what, college-wise, that, that's my career. I'm, I'm going to be a pizza guy the rest of my life. Uh, my parents, thank goodness, said, you know what, that, that, that isn't going to be your job the rest of the life. We're not going to waste that college on that. My dad worked at a place called Santa Fe Corporation or CF Braun, and they had all these Burroughs mainframes and, and they front-end process and stuff. So he basically got me a job there pulling cable. Mm-hmm. So what I found out was everybody was, was kind of lazy. And they would say, hey, do you want to learn this? And the first question from everybody else's mouth was, well, how much more are you going to pay me? Right. And, I, and I was the big dummy. I go, yeah, I'll learn that stuff. So I started learning that stuff more and more and more. Well, I got the experience where the, it, it got me into the banking industry. The banking industry, I was uh, American Savings Bank during the day. And graveyard shift, I worked at First Interstate Bank doing right. pretty much the same thing. American Savings Bank was kind of one of the first customers to deploy enhanced IGRP with Cisco, data link switching with Cisco, ISDN backup with Cisco. I mean, we did everything. And they told us, hey, you know, this is our maiden voyage. You're going to bleed a little. We said, ah, that's okay. We get it. We get it. So the banking industry, we, we got that all deployed. And actually, it went out real well. And I started looking elsewhere. And Cisco says, hey, you're that dummy that started everything with enhanced IGRP and daylink switching. 
which come work for us. Gotcha. So ended up at Cisco. I can't even, I don't know the years. One of these days I'm going to write it down. And uh, it, it was all, you know, the courting and let's take you to lunch and let's, you know, let, let's get you signed on. Once you get signed on, the manager there, and thank goodness again, he looked me in the eye and he has a little watch in his hand. And he says, you know what? He says, if you're not a CCIE in six months, I'm going to fire you. Oh, great. Yeah. So, I mean, I just I just had my first kid. I'm telling my wife how great this job's going to be. So uh, every night we were in the lab, you know, building, breaking, building, breaking. And knock on wood, we, we got the certification at probably five and a half months. So, yeah, I, I was sweating a little bit at Cisco. Been there probably 15 years before uh, Aruba came a knocking, I guess you could say. Gotcha. Now, I've heard that the CCIE... Well, I, for those that are listening that don't know, um, I guess I would describe it as the master's degree, or, uh, sort of gold standard of uh, computer networking certifications. But I, I only know maybe 10 or 15 of those. And I know it's like super hard, harder than pretty much any other cert for like mainstream products. I've also heard that they it has changed so much over the years that um, it's like, even if you go back to take it, whatever it is, you know, five years later, that it would be um, a completely different test. But now when you, when you pass that cert, don't you end up uh, connected to all the other people that have it, similar to like a master's degree? Have you kept up with the other folks from uh, around that time that passed the exam? You know what we did, and we call us the four digiters, right? So I, I, I can't, I'm 38 something. I can't remember 38, 57. I, I don't know what the number is, but they actually have a little database that keeps track. Um, we, we did keep in contact, and what's funny is you're exactly right. The test has morphed, and when I took it, it was two day. You went the first day, and I mean the the proctors there were just ruthless. They they would, you know, reverse cables, jam them into interfaces. They'd you know, you'd ask them a question. They'd say, everything you need is in the in your paper. Look at your paper again. I mean, they were just ruthless, almost to a point where a, a guy cried when he showed up the second day because he didn't make the second day. Uh-huh. So I think six, eight of us start, six, eight of us show in the next morning. They say, hey, you know, Fred, Merle, Earl, come over here. And you're like, oh, great. I didn't make it. Well, Fred, Merle, and Earl were the guys who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a little bit of arguing and tears and all that other stuff. But Today, instead of the two-day, I guess it's a one-day, and they've set up specializations. Um, I see. I think it's it's gotten a little more mainstream, like you said, but Aruba is starting to do, well, starting, they've been doing, like they've got their ACMX certification, ACDX, and all that stuff. So um, I, I think they're really coming to be very well-respected in the industry as well. And that's where I was going was... You know, 15 years at Cisco, I was just an engineer. I, I really, management, I was kind of teetering. Do I want to do management? Do I not? Well, our manager left and they made me the interim guy. And we had this mm-hmm. big bake-off with the CSUs, California State University. There's 23 campuses. Okay. So I go in there and I say, you know what? I, I'm not doing this alone. I'm going to get the, the big guns. So I got a Cisco security guy. I got a Cisco switching guy. I got a Cisco routing guy. I got a Cisco generalist. And all these guys are CCIE gunslingers, right? Mm-hmm. I go into this bake-off and I've got a friend who left Cisco named Lonnie McCullough who started at Aruba. And he was kind of in, in the thick of things for Aruba doing their proof of concept as well. Uh-huh. They had one guy, Greg Pfeiffer, and Greg is still a good friend today. He took on everyone at Cisco in this proof of concept. So Lonnie and I are bannering back and forth. I go, I got you. I got you. You're going down. You're Uh going to eat crow on this one, Lonnie. I got (laughs) you. He he calls me two weeks later. He goes, look at this website. I look at the website and it goes, Aruba has been awarded all 23 campuses of the California (laughs) State (laughs) University. And and he goes, you ready? I said, doggone it. I go, let's talk. 
So that's when I started at Aruba was right after that CSU battering, I guess I took. So yeah. 15 years now, roles and responsibilities have changed. It's been, you know, engineering, um, public facing, um, you're farming, you're, you're tending the crop, so to speak. And basically they throw you in the thick of things, which is kind of, that's what you kind of see today is you, is you want to show incentive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it comes to, well, I need this connector that's not even a Aruba part number. You know what? Let's help that customer find that. So it, it basically the, the job title is self-proclaimed. Mm-hmm. Everything gotcha. I'm telling you now is, is Todd Krupp's opinion. Aruba's opinion may be completely different. So uh, ho- hopefully you're not recording this, right? <laughs> no, we're, we're definitely recording it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm doomed. Uh, to all my managers out there, I'd like to apologize in advance. So that's it. I mean, it, it's really, it's make the stuff work. I've been very fortunate with the engineers. Uh, we, we've gone through the Gary Jenkins, the uh, Matt Weisses. And, and I mean, there's been a bunch of just gunslinger guru engineers at Aruba that have helped me quite a bit. A little bit of a transition, right? But uh, we would get together at my house and we called it the DFS, the Uh dirty fingernail session. (laughs) We would take our gear, Uh competitive gear, and we'd fire it up in my my one game room area and we'd break it, bust it, test it. And if anything was wrong or any weaknesses were found, the whole team knew about it. It was like a monthly occurrence. And uh, we might have had a few pizza and beers in the process. Absolutely. That's an important part of the uh, troubleshooting and lab process right there. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's helped been very beneficial today because a lot of what you'll find as engineers in the industry, we, we call uh-huh. them data sheeters. All they do is they read the data sheet. They don't touch it, feel it, break it, bust it, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, at DZ Solutions, we have a, a rule that's been there since the very beginning where whenever somebody says, this is what I think the customer should use, they have to have evidence other than that's what the tool says they should use. I always, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's a lot of these. Will you, I guess Aruba is part of HPE, so they have a lot of tools actually for configuration, but I think it's always important to know like, okay, what besides the tool says that this is the right uh, solution versus just putting all the data sheet into a configurator thing that then says, this is what you should use. So Exactly, exactly. And, and as an engineer at Aruba, and my fellow engineers, I, I think we consider us the option brokers. When we go mm-hmm. into an account, we provide options to the customer. The customer knows their network better than us. There, mm-hmm. There's no doubt in my mind. They're in that network day in, day out. We're the guys that are looking, you know, outside looking in. We, we got to say, hey, if it were my network, I've got this on-premise option. I've mm-hmm. got a cloud option. Maybe I just want to do local GUI CLI. But you know what? I'm going to show you all the options so you know what paths you can take. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it, we leave it up to them. I think I think it helps us quite a bit. Now you were at, you must've been at Aruba when they were acquired by HPE, right? What was, um, what was that like? Uh, a, a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, a lot of, a lot of guys jump ship early on and I think mm-hmm. they're, they're regretting it. And a lot of them have come back. I think, I think they were worried about getting absorbed. You know, uh, the, what is it? Big fish, little pond mm-hmm. scenario where, at Aruba, you had direct lines to the corporate people that were making the product and making the software. We thought by going to HPE that there'd be additional layers and hoops we'd have to jump through. It was not the case. Um, it was almost like a reverse acquisition. Uh, mm-hmm. All our managers stayed intact. Um, the HP management and engineers that did come join, at least for our territory, rock stars. 
These yeah. guys were unbelievable. And, and we kind of commingled and cross-pollinated. And uh, I mentioned that DFS session at my house. We, we went from probably five engineers to 12. And uh, it, yeah, it was a great this. fit. It was a great fit. We were worried about an eight to five mentality. That, that mm-hmm. didn't occur. We, we, we were very fortunate in that acquisition and everybody in the industry. HP is going to screw up Aruba. They're going to foul it up. And you know what? They didn't. I think they did a great job. Well, didn't they kind of, I mean, they obviously had like the Pro Curve and all those other lines. Haven't they over time kind of folded that all under you guys, right? You are the networking brand at this point. Correct. Correct. Well, uh, originally, and, and I don't know how true it th- this is, but um, Aruba had switches, and mm-hmm. I, I think there were a little, I think we had a good idea. Uh, Aruba's bread and butter is role-based access, and we'll, we'll get into that if you've got time for it. But I, I get the feeling the sheet metal itself, we weren't that good at. Mm-hmm. So by combining forces, we, we got to take some of this role-based access and put it into the original ProCurve line and all that. And what's nice is some of those original ProCurve switches are still managed by the Aruba management platforms today. Mm-hmm. So now we've got two flavors. There's Aruba AOS, which is pretty much the pro curve. You've got tagged and untagged ports, so to speak. And then mm-hmm. you've got a brand new um, self-created line called AOS CX, which is more Cisco-ish when you, you define your port as a trunk or an access port. You define native VLAN. So we've got both flavors of those going. And I think it was genius. I, w- I wish I was that smart because, number one, it retains your legacy customers that are fluent and the old uh-huh. ProCurve command line GUI, all that. And then if you've got Cisco guys that are bordering on the fence going, you know what, maybe I'm tired of paying all this excess money and supporting all that and licenses that I don't need. Well, maybe it's an easier transition. So again, Aruba gave us two choices, and that was basically because the HPE uh, Aruba partnership uh, consolidation, I guess you could say. That's cool. All right. Now, before we talk about role-based access, but we will definitely come back to that. When you were working at the banks, what is the craziest thing that ever happened? Um, per- personnel or, or networking? <laughs> uh, well, I, there were a bunch of guys napping um, on the graveyard shift. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, Let's hear more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, you, you'd come in at 11. At least my shift started at 11, and I think 7 uh-huh. we were out of there. And you'd come in for the, the second shift, and three-quarters of the staff be sound asleep at the consoles. And mm-hmm. these guys were, I mean, one guy slept with his eyes open. That was really creepy. <laughs> um, the other thing we learned is this was downtown LA for First Interstate mm-hmm. Bank. Right. We would go to the taco trucks at probably 2, 3 in the morning to get our, our lunch. Uh-huh. And I, I guarantee you, I ate dog, cat, lizard, <laughs> who I mean, whatever they put. Who knows what was And they were just the, the taco trucks were different. Yeah. So uh, we'd go out and get them, and you know what? Uh, it ended up okay. No one ended up in the emergency room. Well, there, there you go. Maybe it made you stronger. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There's that. I mean, I don't. I don't even know what that building is now. But the first interstate building was the building that, whenever you watch movies from the '80s, right, and somebody's like flying in through a helicopter or running across the rooftops, that's always the the building on the uh on the what happened to that building is it now it's not the u.s bank building because that's newer yeah you know i'm not sure what's funny is there was the main building the 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 Mm -hmm. tower and then the data center was off of 7th street it was kind of a more Mm -hmm. low profile i do remember going through a big earthquake and and one of these managers telling us you need to go check the system and and every guy in there says you you go check that system i'm standing near here so that was kind of fun 
Yeah, the first building our company was in um, wasn't the. Uh, it wasn't a great piece of real estate we were renting, and um, I don't know how many people we had on staff. We had pretty small staff at the time. There was a pretty like a pretty big earthquake, like evacuate the building earthquake, and um, I. It took me a couple hours to convince everyone to go back in <laughs> and go to work, you know, because they. I think they could tell I wasn't one hundred percent sure about that. Yeah, you don't mess with Mother Nature. There, there's no, there's no manual. Yeah, I think it's at the beginning of Heat. It, they show that, which is like one of my favorite movies. They show the LA skyline, and it's like from that period in time where the first interstate uh, tower is like one of the biggest, uh, tallest buildings on the on the skyline. All right, but back to role based access. So, so of the stuff that you guys are working on, or in terms of the Aruba platform, what is the thing you think is the biggest standout, or what is the thing you're most excited about? It, you know, as far as excitement, there, there's a couple different directions. Um, Primarily, uh, 20, 22, 24 years ago, uh, Aruba's inception was this role-based access. And I, I really, to me, it just, I, I'm amazed nobody has just figured this out yet. And what it boils down to is whether I'm a wired, wireless, or, or VPN user, I don't care what VLAN you get assigned, what authentication you come in and out on, I basically set up like little personal firewalls that tell you where you can and can't go, your bandwidth upstream, downstream the quality of service, what apps, throttling of all that stuff. It, it's its amazing to me that nobody has stolen that thunder yet. We, we go into new bake-offs today against our competitors and something as simple as saying, hey, I've got this switch at one of my remote sites and I want to have a guest user just go right out to the internet and not touch anything in your, your entire network. Mm-hmm. A lot of our competitors need a box to tunnel that traffic out to the DMZ and out to the internet with the Aruba rule-based access. And again, th- this is Kirti Melkote and all the founders and all the, you know, the sandal wearing ponytail man bun guys in the hills. They, they figured this out. Mm-hmm. I just go, hey, don't let them touch your internal network. Only let them go out. And that's it. I don't need an external box or widget or anything to make it happen. Um, a lot of times they pigeonhole us into a controller-based wireless solution. That, that was day one. We've done like Aruba Instant controllerless for probably eight to 10 years now. Um, mm-hmm. Same with cloud-based access. Oh, Aruba's new in the industry. No, uh, that's probably been eight, eight, nine years of cloud-based network as well. So as far as excitement, the role-based access never uh, disappoints me, I guess you can say. Gotcha. So yeah, that's been very good. And then also what's really getting creepy and freaky and big brother-ish is, is the AI ML stuff. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's a little spooky that what I'm going to do is build like Boolean logic that says, if this happens and that happens, do this. If mm-hmm. this happens and that doesn't happen, do that. And that's exactly the, the AIML model. Um, what I really like is Aruba uses all its databases. So all the stuff that, you know, we have, I hate to say this, that, that is broken in the past uh-huh. Our technical assistance center data goes, hey, that broke, and this is what we did to fix it. We've actually taken that into the algorithm and said, you know what? If you see this and it has to do that from that TAC database of, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of customers, right? I add that to the pot. In addition to that, I, I crowdsource. So if, if you're a cloud network with Aruba, I compare your size and strength to other customers and say, mm-hmm. hey, well, you know, maybe... This customer is this size, same as you. They saw this issue on the network, and this is what they did to fix it. I'm going to give you that knowledge. I think mm-hmm. that's pretty doggone cool. 
So the AIML stuff is, is really, really coming to fruition. Yeah, I think that, I mean, as somebody who's, you know, spent the last 15 years trying to fix things that are broken, I think uh, the way that we can kind of anonymize and share that information between customers, right? Because of course, customers are all competing with each other and they want their edge, but the ability to just share, anonymize and share all the things that other people learn is so cool. Like definitely, I think at the network layer, that is something that's really, really important. And it's cool to see the ability to do that, I think is going to just make customers' lives better. I think it's so cool that we can do that now. Oh, exactly. Um, exactly. All right. Well, I've been saving this and I'm just going to, I'm just going to come right out with it. My understanding is in 1979, you were the sophomore artistic dance USA roller skating champion. We're going to have to hear the story behind that. <laughs> Tell me, okay, you know, how did you get into artistic dance, roller skating? Uh, where was the, where was the, where was the championship held? <laughs> I mean, what happened there, man? Oh gosh. Um, basically as a kid, my, my parents to, to get rid of me, they dumped me at the roller rink mm-hmm. and it was, you know, you, you do your little thing and pretend to fall and see if any cute girls would come and pick you up and none pick me up. So I said, you know, maybe I, I need a better plan. <laughs> so what they did is they did these lessons. So me and my buddies said, you know what, let's go do these lessons and see what happens. And, and sure as heck, all, all the cute girls were taking lessons too, and they partner you up with these girls. Mm-hmm. So what was good is the girls would know you outside the lessons too, so you can impress all your friends by going, yeah, I know that cute girl. And they come, hi, Ty, how you doing? So, so yeah. that was pretty cool. Well, the competition started occurring and they go, Hey, you guys want to do these competitions? And, and it was kind of neat because, you know, as a, as a teenager, you can hang out outside and, and hang out with everybody. It was a good hangout thing. And then every now and then you'd have to go in there and compete in your little heat and all that other stuff. So you would have different skating partners yearly or every other year or something like that. And the competition started, uh, the main was, was in Bakersfield, California. Okay. And then uh, we ended up skating in that. My partner and I, Teresa Tilson was her name. And she she was basically, she was the rock. I, I was just the, the the chump just hanging out with her. But she's the one that, that basically had the talent and the technique to, to kind of drag me along. So we won no, Bakersfield. Don't sell yourself short, Todd. I bet hey, you were pretty I, good. <laughs> I could fall real good. I, I wouldn't hurt myself when I fell. But uh, started out in, in Bakersfield, California, uh-huh. uh, one of the convention centers there, and you competed against everybody in California. We won that. And then I want to say it was Lincoln, Nebraska. I'll have to ask my mom, but that was the entire U.S. Uh, uh, the top, I think, three or four teams from every state competed in Lincoln, Nebraska, these things called nationals. And we ended up on the top of the podium there. And, and again, Teresa Tilson, she she really she she knew her stuff and taught me her stuff, but uh, that that's how it all panned out. And was funny as the high school press caught wind of it and, and put me in the paper. And boy, did I get abused! I, I got abused. Oh, by your friends? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Hey, do a little do a little twirl for us, yeah. Todd. Do a little pirouette. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It was fun. Uh, met a lot of great people. I actually uh, a couple of the guys that that uh, took lessons and did the competition with me. I still stay in touch with today. I was going to say, and shout out to Teresa Tilson. Have you spoken with her or did you guys lose touch? We have lost touch, but one of my good buddies, and it's funny, is is they say, hey, Todd, take a pirouette. One of my buddies who took lessons and did the artistic dance, his name's Kevin Underwood. He was uh-huh. LAPD. So I'd love to see someone go up to him and go, hey, show me a pirouette, Kevin. He'd probably hit him with a baton or something. <laughs> 
All right, so shout out to Teresa Tilson if you're listening. Maybe this will be the catalyst for uh, you and Todd to to reconnect. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so Todd, I was going to ask what county Marietta is in. I noticed that you guys have quite a few animals. Definitely. Um, is it? Is it? Are you in Riverside County or San Diego County? Yeah, it, it's Riverside County, and, okay. and we're kind of hidden in the hills here. And when I first met my wife, she was a horse girl. And gotcha. growing up, my mom was a horse girl, and she's all, hey, Todd, you want to go ride? Nah, nah, I don't want to ride. No. Hey, we got Clydesdales. You want to come? Nah, nah, I don't want to do that. Well, I met my wife, Pam, and she was horse girl, and she says, hey, do you want to ride? I'd love to. I'd love yep. to. Right? Yeah. So, so then I say, you know what? I really like this girl. I, I think I'm going to go buy me a horse. So I buy this this wild Mustang, and uh, we boarded the horses in La Cunada. Okay. And we would get a call from the owner that was boarding the ranch, and they go, Todd, your, your, your horse is wandering the streets. I, go, I, I closed the pen. This happened like every other week. So so finally what happened, the owner kind of hung out out there. This, this Mustang was jumping out of a six-foot pen, oh roaming God. the streets, coming home at night, the, the police escort, and it, it, it was crazy. Uh, we would ride by the Rose Bowl, and the horse, it, it was nutty. So it would just take off running with me on the back, and, and my wife Pam would call me her crash test dummy mm-hmm. because I, I was launched into cactus, concrete, rock, everything. Gosh. The horse wouldn't stop. So I, I learned. But since then, I've gotten better, mm-hmm. better with horses. Uh, we started, uh, when we moved up here, I want to say we had maybe two horses, Okay, and we say, you know what? Let's let's build a five stall barn just in case. Well, now I think I'm up to seven, six. I've lost count of horses. Mm-hmm. She's got two mini horses, and then she's got two miniature donkeys. The donkeys are named Mater and Quasimodo. Okay, and uh, she dresses them up for Halloween as Disney characters. These <laughs> are the coolest donkeys you've ever seen. I'll have to send you a picture. They will, well, if I saw them, they would be the only donkeys I've ever seen. So. <laughs> <laughs> What, uh, so do they, what are donkeys used for? Like they're a utilitarian animal, right? Is that, do they usually use them to carry oh, yeah. stuff? But your donkeys exactly. are not They're carrying be- any stuff. Your your donkeys are retired. They're just jamming. Right? They they are pets. They are. I mean, uh, you, you see the mentality of the the various donkeys, and, and they hate your guts. Mm-hmm. You go to these two donkeys, Mater and Quasimodo, and they're just love bugs. They follow you around. They they want you to pet them and scratch them and everything else. We've got a horse trail behind us. It, it's kind of an equestrian community. Mm-hmm. Everyone in that community knows Mater and Quasimodo. Gotcha. They ride by and you hear them talking to them. Hey, Mater. Hey, Quasi. What are you doing? And they, they go to the fence and they talk to each other. They're, they're just little love bugs. Interesting. Yeah, I've ridden a horse exactly once and there was a girl involved. And that's the outside. <laughs> it always seems to be the case. Yeah, yeah. I have some pretty good uh, pictures of it because she was like in front of me. So she was and they're, they're They're alternating between me with a big, like nervous grin and me looking totally terrified. You know, like first they had them, they had us go like meet the horses and everything. And there's just something about the relationship between this, like the size of a horse's head and the size of my hand that, you know, they're vegetarian, right? So I'm like feeding it hay or something. And I still was just like, I don't know, man. I don't like my hand being this close. I, I got over it. Like, and I had a, we had kind of a, did it near like Santa Barbara. So there was a cool view and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely something I was like, I mean, I've done a lot of things that other people are probably afraid of. Um, 
<clears throat> but that was like terrified, man. <laughs> I did learn one thing when you go like on a cruise or something, and then they have like a, a port adventure mm-hmm. and that port adventure encompasses horseback riding. Mm-hmm. They ask you who who's good with horses. Yep. And I raise my hand. I look at my wife and her friend. She, we were cruising with a couple of the Drexels, Janie and, and Dave, and neither one of them raised their hand and they kind of just smiled at me. Yep. And I said, what's, what's going on? And I look at her. You I go, got what? the grenade, man. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. exactly. They got me the nastiest horse, yeah. stubbornest horse. It, it bit me and everything yeah. else. And they're riding old faithful, yep. just having a ball. So I, I definitely learned a lesson there. That um, that happened on the, you know, we were on like a group ride and that, that happened. The, the <laughs> I don't know what you call it. The, not the main like guide, but one of the other people that worked at the, we like stayed at this ranch, you know? He uh, he took the grenade, but yeah, they were they asked that like, "Is anybody here?" And nobody really raised their hand. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that horse looked like a piece of work, man. Yeah, I learned. So, I, I definitely learned the hard way. Yeah. Now, I am coachable. <laughs> so I wonder then if you and your wife are watching Yellowstone, or if that's in your future. Yeah, Yellowstone is on the list. We've been watching Heartland. Okay. And uh, the the sickness in us, we're we're still trying to finish Shameless. Oh yeah, so, you know uh, what? I um I have started, but there's so much of that. It's a large body of work to work your way through. So oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, uh Yellowstone's definitely on it. Um Heartland is my gosh, I think they're in Canada and it's just beautiful out there, but it's it's good. Shameless is a lot more demented and dysfunctional. Yeah. But uh there's always something to stream, always something good. <laughs> Shameless is like uh, I lived in the Midwest, not in Chicago, but I lived in Minneapolis and I'm of uh, Irish Catholic descent. And I feel like if you took the worst element of like every person that I've met, you know, the hundreds or thousand people that I met while I was living there for eight or nine years and you like distill them all down into one, like the worst, you know what I mean? The worst uncle or what, and just uh, distill them all down into one family, you would get that family. <laughs> Wild, man. So, and what's his name? Now I'm not going to be able to think of the the guy that plays the father, who I thought was going to be like always on the show all the time. I didn't realize he was going to be a more incidental character, but he's like so. Um, so, and how did you become a Packers fan? You never lived in so, Wisconsin, did you? No, no. As a kid, um, grew up you know at home. My dad was an LA Ram fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he was a parts guy. I think he worked at GM in the parts counter or something. And, you know, they they scrimped and saved and everything else. Well, he ended up getting season tickets to the L.A. Rams. Okay. And he would bring me. And, and I mean, it was the greatest thing. You, you'd go, I mean, this was back when it was at the, the Coliseum. You'd mm-hmm. walk through USC in the park and you'd be stepping over bums on Main Street okay. and everything. Um, greatest experience ever. You know, I was all happy. He got me two hot dogs instead of one. Well, we, we had, you know, we were definitely, you know, Jim Bertelson, you had Roman Gabriel and, and, you know, Deacon Jones and all those guys, Merlin Olson. I was like infatuated. I go, this, this is the greatest thing ever. The owner moves the team out of the state. Uh I'm just heartbroken. I said, you know what? I'm in the market. I'm in the market. And that's when I said, you know what? It's time to become a Packers fan. So that's when I just start, started following the Packers and, and push comes to shove. Two of my best friends today, John Palinkas, Dave Drexel, they happen to be Packers fans. Mm-hmm. So there's an Indian casino down the road from us called Pachanga. Yes. So we would go there and uh, we would watch the games at Pachanga. 
and um, great time. We uh, we've gone to Lambeau. My wife's a Steeler fan, so it's definitely a weird marriage. Yeah, we've gone to Lambeau. Her and I have gone to Lambeau to watch the Packers, and I've gone to Three Rivers to watch the Packers take on the Steelers. Uh, you go to Three Rivers, everybody hops on this ferry mm-hmm. to go from the hotels to the stadium. I'm probably one of five million wearing a, a, a Packers jersey, jersey yeah. surrounded by Steeler jerseys. And I think they beat us with 30 seconds left on the clock. And you talk about abuse on the ship on the way home. Oh, man, they were letting me have it. But you know what? It was fun. It was my team. And the same thing with the Lambo thing. She went and uh, watched, uh, I think we played Seattle Seahawks or something there. But we, we've seen both fields, had great times, got great fans. Uh, all our friends went with us too. So the Packers to us seems to be it. But who knows? I mean, with Aaron Rodgers, if he starts hosting Jeopardy full time, right? That may I may go on the market again. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I grew up an A's fan. Um, I was born in the '70s, so by the time the A's were good, was when I was really starting to pay more attention to baseball. I mean, I watched them when I was a kid, and we went to some games. But then, in the obviously in the '90s, et cetera, they weren't very good. And, uh, I mean, except for the, well, I guess that was later, the Moneyball year. But the point being, they threatened to move to Fremont. So, very similar to what happened with your family. I got super disenfranchised. I was already living here, and that was when I bought Dodger season tickets. But had it not been for them, and they sounded pretty serious about it at the time, threatening to move to Fremont, I would still be an A's fan. But enough was enough at that point. Um, oh, exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, so... Now, did yeah. you play some uh, some baseball in college? So I, I was a high school baseball player, water polo player. Went went to Cal Poly Pomona thinking I'm just going to walk on and be a superstar, and yeah. I sucked. Uh, there, there's no just way around it. The uh, big fish in little pond kind of thing. Um, so I just, you know, let, let's focus on agriculture and all this other stuff. But no, um, I think the closest I got to it was I took softball, and uh, that was about it in college. Gotcha. What, uh, did, did you have a position? Like a third baseman, a pitcher, or yeah, I was I was the third baseman or the the shortstop uh-huh. primarily, and um, I was just slow. I thought I was fast, but I was slow. No. I played third <laughs> base in little league. There was they were never putting me at short. There was no chance. I wasn't athletic enough. But as soon as those line drives started coming down the the third baseline, they were like, "Hey Tom, why don't you uh, why don't you try out left field for a while." <laughs> <laughs> those things started coming fast enough and you know they were like tom you have to jump in front of the ball and i'm like why would i do that there's a baseball coming at my head i'm not jumping in front of that that's dangerous oh gosh so yeah they were like why don't you try uh let's try left field they'll come at you a little slower um i was pretty fortunate my, my dad coached me in little league and pony and babe ruth and all that stuff and um there, there were there were some really good guys um on our teams growing up. And, you know, I thought it was something, Hey, you made the all-star. I, that might've been my pop. I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, college was eye opener though, as far as skill set. Yeah. And I'm always amazed at the transition, just the way that baseball works um, from college to pro ball and how hard it is to like actually get from co- unless you're like a top, top, top tier guy, but to get from college baseball player to, you know, actual major league baseball, like your parents see you on television player, as opposed to like somewhere in the, in the farm leagues. That's like, you got to really, really, really want to play baseball to get there. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of my uh, territory managers, Steve Vitamani at Aruba, his son, uh, I think they call it triple a ball, which uh-huh. is like a step below the pros. Yeah. 
And th- this guy's unbelievable. Very athletic. Anything he does, he's athletic. Guy's name's Pat Vitamani. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, from what I understand, he just said the being on the road just crushed him. He says, I, I he, he probably, if he would have stuck it out, he'd probably been playing the pros, but living on the road yeah. was just sucking the life right out. Plywood of him. It's bumps. a tough life. Plywood bunks <laughs> and buses with no air conditioning. I have a buddy that's kind of a beautiful and tragic story. He's very successful doing other things, but he made it all the way to a starting pitcher for the Cubs. I think he played two or three games, you know, so his parents got to see him on TV, got kind of a career ending injury. And again, ended up being super successful doing other stuff. But um, I asked him, like, what what was it like, like getting from, you know, college ball to uh, the show? And it was you gotta, you gotta love it more than anything, and it, yeah, it kind of sounds like it's the only thing you can do with your life, you know. Oh, exactly. It's a commitment. It's definitely a commitment. So maybe even harder than getting a CCIE, but we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, so tell me, you know, the world is rapidly changing. Um, I made a conscious decision not to talk about the global pandemic today because I think we've all had a lot of that. Um, you know, I asked a lot of people kind of, how did you get through it, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully we're coming out the other side of that thing. But in terms of, you know, there's so much stuff changing everything from, you know, the way that we exchange money to the way that we exchange information to the way that information is compiled and values, you know, derived uh, to, you know, the terrifying like self-driving cars. I was listening to a Wall Street Journal podcast and Elon Musk was saying that we needed more robots because there were, weren't people weren't having enough children. I mean, I think it was a little bit of a hot take, but I understood what he was trying to say, right? He's like, if there's not enough people and there's a labor shortage, then we need to, you know, use more robots to to do work. But um, what, you know, of all these kind of emerging technology trends, what's the thing that excites you most personally? Yeah, you know, it, it goes back to AIML again, right? So uh, Xenobots or whatever they're called, the, um, the self-replicating and they're supposed to, clean up the oceans and mm-hmm. you know if you've got artery problems it's supposed to clean your arteries and all that on one hand i'm thinking you know that that's pretty cool on the other hand i'm, I'm thinking you know, i don't know what was it called west world where the robots go nutty uh-huh. I, I i'm kind of in in center field as far as a quandary on am i excited about it or am i scared about it yeah um you know, e- either way, it, it's got to happen. It is happening. We know it's happening, but um, hopefully it's going to happen for the good yeah. instead of the alternative. So I think that's it. That, that to me, that's exciting looking and seeing how much better. I mean, even like AIML and, and networking gear again, you know, here, here's your recommendation. Push this button and we'll implement this fix. And then last but not least, you don't have to push anything. We'll let, we'll let it do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that scares me a little bit. Yeah, the thing that is, of course, the most terrifying is the decision engine, right? Because the one thing that humans can do probably different than code, right? Because, I mean, I don't have much experience with robots, but I definitely understand that any code that you write is going to have a decision tree, right? If this happens, then take this action, or if this happens, then don't take any action, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, how do we make sure that the more complex and nuanced decisions we ask the code to make... Right. And the bigger impact that has, like if you think about self-driving cars, right? I mean, generally speaking, if it's not in healthcare or critical telecommunications, a computer doing the wrong thing is something we can probably survive. Right. Um, I don't know if that's oh, exactly. I don't know if that's the case exactly. with uh, you know, whatever it is, three thousand pounds of uh, you know, steel and aluminum barreling down the highway. It's a little bit the the, the impact of the wrong decision is uh, probably 
a little bit more real. Yeah. And I think big data, right? You, you got to make sure you got enough data in, in the, the bucket to make those informed decisions. And mm-hmm. you, you hope that all that data is the right data. So yeah. it, it's, it's a little scary and exciting all in the same breath. You know, um, you remember when they first came out with spam filters, Todd, and they had the, you know, a lot of them like used basically like a Bayesian algorithm, right? Where it like gets smarter over time. But there was a thing where attackers could, I mean, this is like early 2000s, right? But the attackers could poison or corrupt the the algorithm slash database. And you would have to kind of, I'm using the wrong technical terms, but um, to the the best I can explain it is you'd have to kind of start over, right? So you've got your core database, then it, the algorithm makes it smarter over time, but you'd have to wipe it out and then start with the uh, just the kind of basic, like, yes, no, we know this, this, you know, email is bad. And then like train your algorithm over time. And, oh, uh, exactly. Exactly. I think one of the things that people are not thinking enough about, um, I mean, certainly in the case of obviously networking companies understand network security in a way that I think we don't need to be as concerned. But I think about, you know, whatever algorithm is deciding whether or not to change lanes on the freeway when it's dark under, you know, unusual weather conditions. Like, and I think about, man, we got to make sure that those databases are so well protected, right? Because of the negative impact of, you know, thousands of cars having the wrong information in there could be. It could be bad. So. Oh, very bad. Uh, very bad. Ma- mass destruction and all the, you know, the sky is falling and all that. I, I, if something goes wrong, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, I mean, if that happens, I mean, you might not see any cars. Yeah. So they'd say, you know what, it's, we're going to have to ban them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, I mean, if certainly at the Dallas airport, uh, I've been in a self-driving, right? Things that are on tracks have been self-driving for some time. It's just because, uh, of course, there's only one decision tree, right? Go on the only road that you're on from where we are to where we're going. And there's, uh, there's not really any, can't really change anything. All right. Well, listen, I think, man, we really got to chat in there. I, t- I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you doing this. Um what do you have? What do you have going on this weekend? Any big plans? Um, I'm my daughter's birthday, Jessica Krupp, Happy and birthday, uh, Jessica. she's going to go to Disneyland. She's uh, she's my pride and joy. Uh, all four kids are doing great. Uh, I'm proud of all four of them. But we're going to Disneyland. We got a little little VIP tour dialed in with all her little friends. Okay. And I say little; they're all in their mid twenties. <laughs> that means I'm real old and COVID fluffy. Yeah. So we'll we'll be doing that, and then, um, gosh. Probably trying to sneak the horses out for a ride. That's kind of my wife and I's little gig. We we try and sneak the horses up with the rain. That sounds good. Yesterday. Might be a little gooey, but that's about it. How long does it take you to get to Anaheim from where you are? Is that a haul or is it not too bad? Uh, it's about 45 minutes to an hour. They put all the toll roads for us. So oh, we, cool. we buzz right in and it works real well. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll work out well. And then uh, originally we would go to the Laker games. And that's kind of slowed down a little bit, but uh, we we had some good times with the Laker group as well. Yeah. Well, hey, they're rebuilding the team. Of course, couldn't go to any games for a while there. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I've got the COVID fluff to 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 prove it. I I don't know about everybody else, but man, I I put on a few pounds. The COVID nineteen. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I certainly did. So that's um that's something I'm working on as we speak, trying to. Trying to get rid of some of that COVID nineteen. I mean, according to like uh, healthcare and mental health professionals that you know I'm friends with outside of work, it sounds like 
that's almost more more the norm than anything else. So, but I mean, you know, that's what happens when you stay home for a year and a half, right? Bound to happen. Oh, exactly, so. exactly. So, well, listen, Todd, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Big shout out to our mutual friend uh, Dan Allen who linked us up. Thanks, Dan, for doing that. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Good luck at Disneyland. I'll keep my fingers crossed for uh, for good weather. And uh, don't forget to ride those teacups while you're there. (laughs) Thomas, thanks for uh, taking it easy on me. I had a good time this morning. Thank you, Todd. Have a great weekend. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music, RSPE, and especially Russ for some help with engineering and equipment for the podcast. Molly Crone for helping me make this all possible in the undisputed podcast engineering champion, the mighty Jeff Rockland, engineering from afar in the South Bay. If you want to learn more about Jeff and all the different projects that he's working on, you can hit him on the web at jrocksgarage.com. J-R-O-C-K-S garage.com. So make sure to check that out. Thanks again and look forward to seeing you next time.